0: Over the past few months, Pastor John has been working his way through the Psalms, so I think we're on about Psalm 10 right now, and a few weeks ago, Pastor Richard uh, went and gave us some background information, right? We, we went through Second Samuel 7, so this is God's covenant with David, God promising David an everlasting kingdom, and as Pastor Richard showed, that was made manifest in David's greater son, later on, Jesus So this morning, we're going to continue to look at the life of David to help us better understand the Psalms that Pastor John is walking through. So if you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16. Uh, As you're turning there, I have to point out Pastor Richard sort of uh, fast-forwarded to the end. He's like, Episode four, I'm backing us up to episode one. So he gave us the Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader. I'm taking us to Anakin and a double-edged lightsaber. So the Star Wars dork in me is uh, loving the connection. First Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice for the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. May God bless the reading of his holy, sufficient, and inerrant word. Looking at the story of David, we get a glimpse of how God chooses to operate in this world. In God's wisdom and sovereignty, God is at work in the lives of his people. He discerns the heart, he elevates the lowly, and he empowers his anointed. In the first five verses here, we see the working of God's sovereign hand. God's sovereign hand. All right, so so what exactly is going on here? We, we've sort of jumped into the middle of this narrative of Samuel, right? So before we get too deep, we're going to back up a little bit and review of what's going on in the life of Samuel to this point. So you'll, you'll recall that Samuel was a miracle baby of sorts. His, his mother Hannah repeatedly went to the temple. She was barren. She was praying to God, crying out, asking for a baby. God heard her prayer, and Samuel was born Uh, as an answer to her prayer. Upon his birth, Samuel was set apart for service to God. He went and he lived with the priest Eli. Now, now Eli, and and especially his sons, who uh, the ESV translates as worthless men, they lived in rebellion to God. And ultimately, they were rejected by God and they were struck down. Samuel grows and he takes a leadership position in Israel. So So Samuel then becomes universally recognized in Israel as a prophet and then comes to judge over all of Israel. Late in the life of Samuel, the Israelites rejected the form of government, the form uh, of leadership that God had set up in Israel. And instead they wanted a king to rule over them so that they could be like other nations. In chapter 8 it says, Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So, So God says, okay, you you want a king. You want a king to rule over you like the other nations. I'm going to give you what you want. And Samuel goes on to tell them what type of king God is going to give them. It's exactly the type of king they want. And this king is going to rule in a harsh and terrible manner over them. Still, the people do not heed this warning. They're unrelenting. We we read later in chapter 8, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And and when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Who does God select? God goes on, we learn in chapter nine, to choose just the type of king that the Israelites were clamoring for, the type of king that they desire. He chose Saul, a Benjaminite, the son of Kish. So Saul was a wealthy man. He was a handsome young man. In fact, it says, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he, 1 Samuel 9, 2. And he was a tall man. It says he was taller than any, uh, taller than any of the people. Now, Uh, This is not surprising, right? God is going and he is choosing a king for them, the type of king that they are clamoring for. Uh, He chooses handsome, wealthy, tall guy. Now, often we do this the same way, right? George Washington, he was the tallest dude in the room. That's the guy we chose as the, the father of our country. His very presence was commanding. He had a natural posture that engendered him to a leadership position. Um, I know the president of the company that I work for, he is the tallest dude in the room. Uh, now, this isn't always the case, but often it's how it works out. We, we see people that, that give out a posture of leadership just by their very physical presence. So that makes somebody with a, a Napoleon complex like myself a little bit nervous sometimes. God chose Saul. But he chose him according to the wishes of the people. He chose a man with a lot of money and influence, a man who was easy on the eyes, a man whose very physical demeanor was towering over those who were subordinate to him. This is the king that Israel desired. And Saul, though he was anointed by Samuel, and though he was chosen by God, Saul ultimately rejects the Lord. For all his physical and political prowess, Saul is a failure in the eyes of the Lord. In chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, we see that he performs an unlawful sacrifice. He offers a burnt offering to God. This was a task that could only be performed by a priest according to the law of God. Samuel rebukes him and he tells him that God will pull the kingdom away from him and remove the kingdom from his family. In chapter 15, Saul goes on to disobey a direct order from God. He was to go in and destroy all of the Amalekites and not take any of the spoils of war for himself. Rather, Saul does the opposite. He goes in, he conquers, he takes the best of what they had, and he does not utterly destroy them. He doesn't kill the king. Samuel has to come in and do the dirty work for him. He... (laughs) Cuts off the head, cuts up the king. He uh, cares more about the holiness uh, that God has required than, than, than pleasing himself, than doing things according to his own desires. Saul cares nothing for the holiness of God. He cares nothing for the commandments God has giving, given him, and God rejects him as king. That's chapter 15. So, so we come to this verse this morning in chapter 16, where Samuel is in mourning. Samuel has been a judge over Israel. Samuel has been the one that has installed Saul as king. Samuel has taken spiritual leadership over the country, and he is seeing his country in ruins because this leader has rejected God, and now God is pulling the kingdom from him. God, in his sovereign plan, had given Israel exactly what they asked for, exactly the type of king they wanted, and it has blown up on them. Now, God is about to select a king for himself that will rule over his people in the fear of the Lord. In these first five verses, we clearly see the hand of God at work in the situation. Over and over, God uses the pronoun I. Right? He, he uses the pronoun I to clue Samuel into who is the one in control. In verse one, I have rejected him. I will send you. I have provided myself a king. Verse 3. I will show you what to do. You shall appoint for me him who I declare to you. He then goes on to orchestrate the manner in which Samuel can get to Jesse without alerting Saul to his intentions. So so don't miss this. There is no doubt about who is in control. There's no doubt about who is calling the shots. Samuel is not left in a position where he needs to wonder about what God wants him to do. God is the one who clearly delineates out the plan of what is to be, to be done, and God is the one that is in control. God has a plan, and he's working through Samuel to accomplish his good purposes. So, so there's, there's a couple of takeaways from this portion, uh, from this passage here. First of all, uh, notice how God has been working in the lives of Israel The entire time. They were calling out for a king, but it was God who still chose Saul to be their leader. God gave them exactly what they were asking for, and they are responsible for their sinful attitude. God warned them ahead of time because he knew exactly what was going to happen. And though he is sovereign over all things, he still holds them accountable for their rebellious attitude. God is not responsible for the sin of Israel or the sinful actions that resulted in Saul. He is not the author of sin, but in a great paradox, he is still orchestrating all things. God chose Saul, and God will choose David. He is at work in the world, and nothing is happening outside of his hand. It's not different today. God is not responsible for sin we are responsible for our sin. But God is still in control. He is still working his good purposes in all things. We have been working our way through the doctrines of grace in our adult Sunday school time. And there are many hard but decidedly biblical truths that we have been studying. At the center of these truths is this. God is sovereignly in control of all things, working his good will to bring glory to himself through his people. It was true in Samuel's day. It is true today. Our good God brings us our greatest joy as he sovereignly works in this world to bring glory to himself. Therefore, we trust our good God. Second thing we should take away. God uses his word to accomplish his purposes. How did Samuel know what to do? God told him. How do we know what to do? Same thing, right? God tells us. How do we know what to do in our lives? God has written a book. God gives us his word. That's why we read it. That's why we study it. That's why we cherish the Bible. God's word is his expression of his will to us. And like Samuel, we should hear his word. We should be changed by his word, and we should obey We do not need to hear a voice from the sky or a supernatural expression of God saying, this is what you must do. God has already told us. We have his sufficient guide to all matters in life and death, and it's found in the pages of Scripture. God spoke directly to Samuel. He spoke directly to the other prophets. He spoke through the apostles, and they have all recorded it for us in his book. If we want to hear To God if we want to hear God speak to us today, take up and read. We take up and we read the scriptures. In his wisdom and sovereignty, God is at work in the lives of his people. He discerns the heart, he elevates the lowly, and he empowers his anointed. In these first five verses we have seen God's sovereign hand at work. In the next two verses we learn of God's discerning wisdom. God's discerning wisdom. Verse number six, when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. There, there is a lot of theological truth packed into this short verse. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This uh, this past week I had the opportunity to travel back um, with uh, one of the human resources managers from our company uh, to Michigan Tech, where I went to college. It was, it was awesome. Uh, we went up there to recruit a few new engineers um, and to work to come work for us on some projects that we have coming up in the near future. And uh, it, it, was, it was cool for me personally. I love Houghton. It's a great town. Uh, Linda uh, can attest to that as well. Um, but this was the first time I was able to go to the career fair and sit on the other side of the table. Normally I'm uh, the kid with the resume looking for a job. This time I was able to, to, to switch roles. And uh, we stood there as thousands of students wandered in. And we were able to talk to quite a few of them. It was, it was a bit overwhelming. Um, plus, uh, <laughs> I, I swear they have gotten younger. They were like 12 years old. So uh, I think maybe my perspective is changing a little. But uh, anyway, we spent about 90 seconds trying to get to know each of these students, right? So they come up, they give you your resume, you're like, hi, how you doing? They're sweating and talking, looking at their shoes or whatever. And so we're just trying to gauge them Uh, and get an initial kind of reaction to how they respond. So we're looking at not only how well are they doing in their classes, but uh, what type of experiences have they had, what do they like to do, how do they present themselves to a future employer. We were looking for any sort of clue that would give us an idea uh, of who they are, something that would set them apart over other equally qualified candidates. We were looking at their external appearance and we were trying to determine if their internal work ethic and qualifications and expertise would be a benefit to our company. Uh, we, we were truly doing what this verse says. We were looking at outward appearance. Um, side note, I think our HR manager is going to hire like the tallest dude in the room there, so <laughs> go figure. Um, we cannot see someone's heart. right? We can't see someone's heart. We are not God. Now now we can see the outworking of someone's heart. As as we get to know people, we can see what type of speech they use. We can see what type of fruit they are producing in their lives. Um, And we can get an indication of of what someone's heart is. That's, that's, to me, the scariest part about getting up here and preaching God's word is is my family is sitting there and they know exactly what type of person I am. And, And they know all of the shortcomings. They see... Uh, an outworking of my heart. But, but we cannot discern someone's heart. Only God can do that. And that is exactly what God is doing here when he picks Israel's next king. So David, the psalmist that we've been studying, is described as a man after God's own heart. In his writings, even in the first 10 psalms that we've, we've been studying, we've got an idea of what type of a man David is. He fears God. Right? He loves the Lord. He wants God to be glorified among all peoples. He recognizes his lowly uh, place as a man compared to a majestic God, Psalm 8. He pleads with God in the evening, Psalm 4. He pleads with God in the morning, Psalm 5. He cherishes God's law, Psalm 1. He is a chosen instrument of God at this time precisely because he bows his knee in humble reverence to God. God has done a work in the heart of David to turn him toward himself in repentance and faith. Now, we know David is not perfect, right? We see uh, this is the same knucklehead that covets and commits adultery and murders and lies and steals and, and, and does all that Uh, In one short stint with Bathsheba, he breaks like half the commandments. Um, This is a, a dude that could have his own HBO miniseries and it wouldn't be appropriate for us to watch. He is human and he is a very sinful. But again, what do we see poured out in the Psalms? We see David's heart as he is repentant against you. You only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight. Psalm 51. David is repentant. He turns back to God in faith. And he is not rejected by God. He is preserved because he is truly God's child. He trusts in the Lord. He has a heart that follows after God. Man looks at God, or man looks at outward appearance, but God looks at our heart very easy for us sometimes to use this verse pointing at others. We might th- say, think things like, uh, it looks like he's just trying to put on a good show, but God really knows his heart. He'll, he'll get him. Or did you hear what she said? I wonder what is going on in her heart. We often try and play God, but this, this verse should cause us to take a nice long look in the mirror Um, In in fact, I'm I'm convinced this verse should cause a lot of fear and trembling. Um, Think about what this means. We We can put on a good show for our parents. We can put on a good show for our friends, for our boss, for our kids, for our neighbors, for our fellow church members. But none of that means anything if we are not humble before God, if we are not bowing our knee to King Jesus in submission and in faith. Man looks at those outward activities, but God looks at our hearts. We cannot know exactly what's going on in the heart of someone else, but we can know what is going on inside of our own, our own heart. So, so are you submitted to God's kingly rule in your life? Is the holiness of God something that you think about daily? Does your heart desire to hear from him in his, in his word and commune with him in prayer? Or... As I think often happens, has the fleshly desires of the world choked it out? Are you committed to serve Him no matter what the cost? Or do you only want to do what is convenient? It's very easy to go on with our daily activities and not give a second thought, but we need to slow down and take a long, hard look at what this verse is telling us. Man sees the outward appearance, but God sees what's important, He sees our hearts. Or on the flip side, are, are you patting yourself on the back for all of the spiritual things that you do, for all of the spiritual things that, that you are proud of? But your heart is far from God. You may be acting out of a sense of hollow duty, but God wants your heart. For hearts are truly bowing to him as the Lord of our life. It will show up organically then in the outward activities that we do. It's not going to be something that we have to press into action, it'll be something that just shows up. It will be a joy, not a burden, to gather with God's people. It it will be a joy, not a burden, to come to a, a Saturday morning prayer service. Um, that will be something we desire, not something we'll reluctantly come to if we have enough time or if it's convenient in our schedule. If 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 God has our heart, we will be speaking about Jesus to our lost friends and family members. In evangelism, if God has our heart, we will be speaking about Jesus to our fellow Christians in encouragement. We will be acting out Matthew 28 and making disciples of all people. We don't don't want to do these things out of duty in order to be right with God. That doesn't work. We do these things out of the overflow of our heart. God looks at our heart and we need to reflect long and hard where we are at with God. Do you desire him with your whole heart? Eager to change and obey? Or are you indifferent to the things of God in cruise control on your Christian life? Uh, Christian, this is a dangerous place to be. Man sees what we do outwardly, but God sees our heart. Furthermore, this portion of Scripture, this passage teaches us something about how we go about selecting our leaders. Um. We see, uh, we see Samuel say, this looks like the guy. And God says, no, I'm not looking at his outward appearance, I'm looking at his heart. We are to emphasize spiritual maturity over the things that the world ho- holds dear. Um, as, as I was studying this passage, I could not help but think of how this is going to relate to us as a church. and our <clears throat> pending pastor search, what are the characteristics that we're going to look for? Are we looking for the best communicator? Are we looking for the most well-polished candidate? Are we we looking for someone whose wife can play the piano? Or someone who has the most impressive seminary degree? Or or are we looking for someone that is walking closely with our God? Uh, Don't get me wrong. None of these things are bad in and of themselves. I'm sure that would be very nice things to have, but they're secondary, are they not? The qualifications Paul gives us for a pastor have everything to do with the character of the individual. He is to be committed to one spouse. He is to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. He's to be able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, and he needs to manage his household well. These are character issues. These are heart issues. He needs to be able to preach the word, and he needs to care about his personal holiness, his walk with God. Though we cannot see the heart, these are the types of things that we should be emphasizing when we look for a leader. Uh, we dare not fall into the same trap as Israel, clamoring for the best outward appearance, the, the most impressive characteristics. Um, but rather we should be looking at inward godly character. We should seek to follow the Lord's example and pray that he will send us a man with a heart who truly seeks after God, whose character matches his convictions. God is working here as he selects Israel's king, and he explicitly says he is not going to select according to the wisdom of the world, but rather he is going to select a king that will follow him with his whole heart. In his wisdom and sovereignty, God is at work in the lives of his people. He discerns the heart, he elevates the lowly, and he empowers the anointed. In verse eight, we see this on display in God's adjusted order, God's adjusted order. Verse eight, then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one, Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. All right, so Samuel is now one by one evaluating Jesse's sons, and God keeps saying, saying no. So recall in the first one, Eliab uh, was the one that Samuel thought was going to be it. Um, he probably was impressed by his birth order or his physical appearance, but, uh, but God had other plans. So as each son comes walking by, God's like, nope, nope, next, never heard of him, next. Finally, he runs out of sons, and Jesse has to ask, what's the deal? It's like, what, what's up? Do you have any other sons? How fitting it is that the last son to be called to the group is shepherding a flock of sheep. David comes before Samuel, and the Lord tells him this. This is him, this is the one. Uh, so, so notice a couple things in this passage. It says David was ruddy, and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. His, his outward appearance was nothing to scoff at. This is not, however, the criteria that God used in his wisdom. Rather, God looked at the heart. So, so uh, whether or not he was deemed leadership material by worldly standards, that's not the issue. The good looks aren't a detriment, but they are largely irrelevant. <clears throat> Secondly, notice what God has done here. David is the youngest of Jesse's sons. David is serving in a humble role as a shepherd. He is not presuming anything. In fact, he doesn't even show up when Samuel comes to this meeting. He's like, it's not me. I'm, I'm the youngest kid here. I'm taking care of the sheep. He's not coming for me. His humility is on display here. And it's exactly that humility that God desires. God flips the order. God, God flips the script here. This is not uncommon for God. Uh, in fact, we've, we've seen this pattern before, have we not? Esau, oldest son of Isaac, was rejected by God in favor of Jacob. Jacob's son Joseph was, was made higher than all of his older brothers. Matthew 19 says, in the end, many who are first will be last, and the last first. God has repeatedly operated this way, shaming the wisdom of the world with vessels that appear weak. So, so the anointing here of David points forward to the anointing of Israel's future and ultimate king, David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Like David, Jesus was born into an unassuming family. He was not adorned with the riches like Saul was, but he was lowly. Like David, Jesus was not born into a royal family, but rather he was born into a common everyday household. Like David, Jesus was meek and humble in spirit. He did not seek to elevate himself with the religious elite of the day. As the true and better David, he was fully obedient to the will of the Father. In even greater ways than David, Jesus was a man after God's own heart. Whereas David shepherd the flock that God gave him, Jesus, our good shepherd, cares for his people in even greater ways. God provided for himself a king in David, and he has provided a true and better king for us in Christ. We see a foreshadow here as Samuel anoints David, the king of Israel, We see the inauguration of our ultimate king in Jesus in the pages of the New Testament. Paul says in Philippians 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, humbled himself, and he died a terrible death on a cross. He absorbed God's wrath. He took the punishment that we deserve as sinners so that we might be saved. If we repent of our sin and turn to him as our king, as our Lord, by faith, we become children and heirs. Just as God anointed David the king and through him cared for his people of Israel, so too God has anointed Jesus, the king of all things. And through him, he has provided salvation to his people. Look to Christ in repentance and faith. Bow to him as your king and find salvation and refuge in him. We have seen that in his wisdom and sovereignty, God works in the lives of his people. He discerns the heart, he elevates the lowly, and finally, he empowers his anointed. In verse 13, we see this empowering in God's equipping spirit. God's equipping spirit. Verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. All right, so God's spirit is now given to David. David. This is a special manifestation of his spirit that was given to Israel's king. We saw this happen with Saul in chapter 10, and we see it again here with David. This is, this is a distinct characteristic that appears at this time with Israel's rulers, and it is a display of God's power as he separates out a leader for himself. God is equipping his king with his spirit in order that he may lead his people well. Um, on a side note, this is, this is not the same Uh, thing exactly as a New Testament, uh, the New Testament um, manifestation of the Spirit we see that is delivered to all New Testament believers. Uh, For one, we see uh, both Saul and David receive the Spirit. Uh, This does not happen uh, I'm sorry, we see Saul both receive and lose the Spirit. This does not happen with the Holy Spirit we are given. Uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Uh, The Spirit does not leave us, and and all who believe are given the Spirit and are glorified. Secondly, uh, no one else in these texts receives the Spirit this way. This is special, this is for the King. It is not the Holy Spirit that is given to those of faith, but a special equipping that God gave to his chosen leader. Uh, this is why David says in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Uh, we sing that, but, but we need to understand God doesn't take his Holy Spirit from us. God took his Holy Spirit from Saul, uh, his, his equipping spirit from Saul as he rejected God. Um, this is, this is a, a special situation. But what we do see here is a principle of how God is equipping those he calls for a specific task. God God does not leave us to our own devices, but he provides for us his power as we follow him in faith. He equips us, he empowers us, and it is through his strength that we're able to follow and obey him. Um, Think then of how this applies to us today. Uh, God, in the same way, equips his people. He has commanded us to make disciples of all nations, and he has promised that he will be with us to the end of the age. So so remember what we talked about this summer. Uh, This summer we went through a a long series about every disciple is a disciple maker. We study uh, the word hard, we work our way through the scriptures, but it is God by his spirit that equips us to engage the lost with the gospel, and it is God by his spirit that equips us to encourage our fellow believers with his word. The same principle is at work here. God equips his people for his work. Uh, Last month we looked at 2 Corinthians 1, and we saw there that at times we suffer so that we fully rely on God and his power rather than ourselves. Uh, God himself provides the strength that we cannot muster up ourselves. God is equipping those he calls for service. Uh, God used David in mighty ways, Um, David killed the giant. David led the nation of Israel to unknown prosperity at the time. He was a courageous warrior. He was a fearless leader, a winsome poet, and a man of God. Um, He made grave mistakes. He modeled repentance, and he led God's people according to God's law. And he penned many of the psalms that we cherish in our scriptures today. Through this life, we can see how God is at work and how we are to respond in his wisdom and in his sovereignty, God is at work in the lives of his people. He discerns the heart, he elevates the lowly, and he empowers the anointed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you have shown us in the life of David. We thank you for your uh, Your sovereign hand over all things. We thank you for uh, showing us in your word that it is our heart that you desire, not our outward actions, but, but truly our heart and its, its posture toward you. Lord, I pray that we see what you have given to us here, that we are changed, that we are uh, affected by your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us a spirit that uh, seeks to, uh, to love and cherish you, not to merely put on a show. Lord, we thank you for your spirit that you have given us. We thank you for equipping us, for promising never to leave us, and for giving us um, uh, all things through Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.